We are finishing up uh, Judges, and we got a lot of material to cover today to finish the book, so we're going to dive right in. Remember, last week we were in chapter 20, and <clears throat> the Israelites, so if you remember what happened, recap, by this time Israel has become completely Canaanite, completely pagan, and especially the people in the tribe of Benjamin at the city of Gibeah. And they went there, and this was an event that was straight out of Genesis from the Sodom and Gomorrah days. And they acted like the people of Sodom, basically, in their treatment towards the Levite and his concubine, who the Levite shouldn't have had in the first place. Everything about the situation is wrong and godless in all aspects. And that's what the whole narrative is trying to drive home, putting this at the end of Judges, is that this characterizes Israel during the period of the Judges. They went from such heights under Joshua and the conquest of the land to completely assimilating into the pagan culture of the land that they were supposed to drive out because of the very paganism that those people practiced. And now Israel has basically become its own worst enemy. So there was this event, this horrendous event, where this woman was completely abused to the point of death. And then her, uh, the Levite, her concubine, her, her husband, uh, basically used her death as a rallying cry to get revenge on the town that did it, but completely leaving out the fact that he was the one that put her in that situation to begin with. So uh, there's this righteous indignation of all of Israel, and he did an ancient Near East war summons where he dismembered the body of someone or an animal or a sacrifice or a prisoner or something. It was, was what happened in the ancient world to rally the troops, only it was of the victim itself. So not only was she victimized, she was also defiled and not even given a proper burial. It's, it's just horrendous on top of horrendous is what is going on in that story. And so in response then, all of Israel finally rallies the troops together and says, we're going to go attack this city that did this. Okay, well, that's, that's a plus, you know, let judgment fall on this city. And so they tell the Benjaminites the, of the territory where the city's in, hey, turn these people over. The Benjaminites put tribal loyalty ahead of covenant loyalty. They should have turned him over immediately. Actually, the Benjaminites should have enacted justice and put to death the men of the city who did that. But they don't. They actually send out their troops to fight to defend these gang rapists. And so it's just the, the whole situation is awful. So that's where we ended last week with the, the Benjaminite troops and uh, all the armies of Israel in a face-off. And so that was chapter 20, verse... 17, yeah, we ended at 17. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fighting, all of them fighting men. Verse 18, the Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us shall go first to fight against the Benjaminites? So now they've decided, all right, well, Benjamin's going to fight, so we're going to fight. It's time for war, and we better get God's blessing real quick. So they've already decided on war. They already decided to fight. So they just kind of go to God as an afterthought like you would do in a pagan society. Like, let me get the God's blessing and let me get some wisdom from our God who will lead us in victory. So God says, uh, Judah should go up first. It's only fitting. That's where the victim came from Judah. Uh, so <clears throat> verse 19, the next morning the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The men of Israel, and Gibeah is the city that they're going to attack. The men of Israel went out to fight the Benjaminites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjaminites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites, or 22 element, uh, elephs, regiments of Israelites, on the battlefield that day. 
But the men of Israel encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening. They inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to battle against the Benjaminites, our brothers? So the first time they ask, who will go up first? And God says, Judah. So Judah goes, they get their butts kicked. They just massive defeat. So they rally, okay, okay, let's regroup. Let's do this again. All right, let's go inquire of the Lord. They weep, which is like a sign of, of penance or trying to get the God's attention uh, so that he'll act on your behalf. And then they ask again, shall we go up and attack again? The Lord answered, go up against them. Now the Lord first time did not say whether they should fight and didn't say anything about the outcome. Just said, Judah, send Judah first. Now the Lord says, go up against them. Doesn't promise them victory. Doesn't sanction the outcome. And it's almost like God is giving them the answer that they already wanted because of the thing that they had already decided. Now we see this because what's going to happen is they're going to get beat again. We see God doing this in Israel at other times. When Israel is bent or their leaders are bent on doing something against the will of God, God will allow them to go and rush headlong into their own plans and suffer the consequences of it. He does it to King Ahab. King Ahab is saying, should I go fight this battle? <clears throat> and all of the prophets are like, yeah, you got it. Yeah, God's on your side. And then Ahab says, wait a minute, there's one prophet who never says anything good about me. Let me ask him. So they ask for Micaiah. And Micaiah comes in and, and Ahab says, it's 1 Kings, uh, it's chapter 22 of 1 Kings. And Ahab says, should I go fight? And Micaiah's like, oh yeah, go for it. And King Ahab says, why are you teasing me? Like he knows that he's not, he's like, no, no, tell me for real. And there's this whole story about God saying, no, when, when leaders and people are hell-bent on making decisions, sometimes God will confirm their decision in order for them to be judged. And that doesn't sit well with a lot of people's theology. But you have to keep in mind, this isn't like God doing this to people on a day-to-day -day basis. And it isn't like God doing this to people who faithfully are trying to follow Him. So we don't have to wonder like, oh, maybe God's answering me uh, for me to experience judgment rather than actually giving me guidance. No, God does this in times of Israel's national apostasy. And that's what's going on. They have apostatized. They have reached the depths of their paganism. And so God, in, God has no covenant obligation to deal faithfully with them anymore. That's the key, is God is under no obligation to, to give them reassurance and to give them guidance when they have completely shunned Him and turned to everything about what He didn't want them to be. And that's a warning for us, I think, in Scripture, is God, just because somebody gets a word, doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. And even if it's from God, check the person who's getting the word and their behavior and what they're trying to do and their character. And, and are they walking with the Lord? Are they seeking God? Because Scripture gives us this uncomfortable reality that sometimes God will lead people into their own follies, consequences. <clears throat> because that's His judgment on them. And, but that's long after they've reached the point of no return. And that's what we see happening because they say, shall we go up against them? And the Lord says, go up against them. Verse 24, then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time when the Benjaminites came from, out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18 regiments or 18,000 Israelites. All of them armed with swords. So Israel's best and brightest have dropped by the thousands twice now. 
against by, by at the hands of these Benjaminites. Then the Israelites, all the people, went up to Bethel, and there they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now they are starting to go back to being the covenant people. Burnt offerings and fellowship offerings are Levitical sacrifices. Before, they were just seeking almost like an oracle or, or a reassurance. But now they're actually starting to pull back to the covenant obligations or the covenant um, regulations that they had just been flaunting for the entire book. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. Verse 27, and then there's a parenthetical note. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministering before it. So this places this whole event in the time of Aaron's grandson. That means this is the first generation of Israel that has not seen the Exodus events. So this is Phineas's uh, younger contemporaries. That means that this, what's happening chronologically, really takes place near the beginning of the book of Judges. And that's a huge whoa moment because we realize, oh, this has characterized Israel throughout most of this period of the judges. They asked, shall we go up again to battle with Benjamin, our brother, or not? The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. So now God finally says, okay, now go and I will give you victory tomorrow. The judgment against Israel has almost, it seems, been abated or come to completion and now God says, okay, I'll give you victory. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjaminites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjaminites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They figure we beat these guys twice, so let's go get them. There they are. They're near the city. Let's go out and get them. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before. About 30 of the men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. So telling you geographically where this is taking place. While the Benjaminites were saying, we're defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelite ambush charged out of his place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's finest men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. The fighting was so heavy that the Benjaminites did not realize how near disaster was. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and on that day the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjaminites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjaminites saw that they were beaten. So finally Israel strikes down these almost all of Benjamin. Now the men of Israel had given way before Benjamin because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. The men who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. The men of Israel had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city. And then the men of Israel would turn the battle. So the, it's retelling their plan was lure them out of the city and then when the, when the other forces in hiding come out, lure them away, feet, defeat them in battle, put the city to the sword with the other groups. So there's just this chaos and pandemonium going on and the city is being defeated. The Benjaminites had begin to, begun to inflict casualties on the men of Israel, about 30, and they said, we're defeating them as in the first battle. So again, Benjamin thinking they're winning. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjaminites turned and saw the smoke of the whole city going up into the sky. Then the men of Israel turned on them 
And the men of Benjamin were terrified because they realized that disaster had come upon them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the desert, but they could not escape the battle. And the men of Israel who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjaminites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjaminites fell, all of them valiant fighters or mighty warriors. As they turned and fled towards the desert to the rock of Rimon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjaminites as far as Gittim and struck down 2,000 more. So the Benjaminites are just getting beat down now, crushed, getting chopped off little by little by little until only a few remain. Verse 46, on that day, 25,000 Benjaminite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 turned and fled into the desert to the Rock of Rimmon, where they stayed for four months. So this little 600 out of what was initially 20-something thousand, there's 600 left, and they flee to this system of caves out near Gibeah, and it's called the Rock of Rimmon, which means pomegranate rock. And they flee there, and they hide there in the desert for four months. That's all that's left of Benjamin. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. So not only did Israel beat the Benjaminites, but now once again escalating the cycle of violence because of the crime against one individual, the Levite's concubine, they decided to attack the whole city to punish the guilty, even though it was only some men of the city. So not only do they do that, but then all of the cities of Benjamin, after they beat the Benjaminites in this protracted battle, then they go through on a rampage and they just wipe out everybody in the tribe of Benjamin. They do to Benjamin what God had initially sent them to do to Canaan. Israel has turned on itself and they are treating fellow Israelites as if they are Canaanites, which is only fitting, in the, ironically, because Israel has basically become Canaan. But it's just this spiraling out of control of violence and retribution and more violence and more retribution and, and, and to the point where now it's just this, uh, this disaster, this national uh, ethnic cleansing almost of the Benjaminites. Just totally, everything is, everything is chaos. Everything is being come undone. And now, verse 20, or chapter 21, we get to the end of the story. Now, finally, Israel kind of stops and realizes, wait, 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 what's happened? Oh, this is not good. We've just pretty much wiped out a whole tribe. Chapter 21, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. So where they first gathered to say we're going to attack Benjamin for what they did to the Levite's concubine, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah, saying not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjaminite. So they, this became a tribal war. And they made an oath saying, we'll not, not only are we going to wipe them out, and we're going to make sure that they never have any future because they will never, none of us will give our uh, daughters to them as wives. Which is basically saying they are out. We are cutting them off from Israel. And so they made this oath at Mizpah. And Mizpah, that same name of a different Mizpah, but it's the same name as where Jephthah made his rash vow that was unnecessary. And now Israelites are making a rash vow again unnecessary. None of this was God's direction. None of this was God's plan. This was all Israel against the Benjaminites because of what the Benjaminites had defended when the people of Gibeah had done what they had done. So it's just this whole like downward spiral of evil that we're seeing. And now they finally realize what has come, the aftermath. 
Verse 2, the people went up to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Because you murdered them, morons. Like, because you... What do you mean, why should this happen? They're acting incredulous now. They just went on a rampage of violence and pillaging and destruction, and then they turn to God. Why did this happen? It's the most ridiculous thing, and it's supposed to be ridiculous. This shows the absurdity. This entire situation is absurd. And so they're crying out to God of Israel, why has this happened? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel? Because you wiped them out. That's why. Because this whole thing is just gone off the rails. Verse 4, God doesn't answer. They ask why, they weep, they cry, God doesn't answer. God is silent in this entire chapter. That's a huge point to keep in mind in chapter 21. God is entirely silent throughout this. He takes no participation in any of this at this point. It's almost like He's like, I'm stepping away. You, you've both experienced my judgment. Israel has experienced my judgment by getting beat by the Benjaminites. Benjamin has experienced my judgment by the Israelites nearly wiping them out. Now I'm out of this thing. I'm just going to step back and leave you to your own wallow in your own devices. And that's what he does. Verse 4, early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah should certainly put to death certainly be put to death. So another rash vow was taken at Mizpah. Not only are we not going to give our daughters to the Benjaminites, but now anybody who's not in on this massacre is going to be put to death. Any village that doesn't send their men out to fight with us, anybody who's not with us is against us and they're going to be put to death. They made this vow. Entirely unnecessary vow. Verse 6, the Israelites grieve for their brother, the ben brothers the Benjaminites after they wiped them out, by the way. Now they grieve for them. And they say, today one tribe is hacked off from Israel. They said, how can we provide wives for those who are left since we have taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? And they discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead, which is a town on the Transjordan, had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people from Jabesh Gilead were there. So the people from Jabesh Gilead were like, nope. We're not even part of this. You guys do your thing. We're, sticking, we're staying out of this. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. So harem them as well, like the Canaanites. Treat them like the Canaanites because they didn't come out and join in in this entire disaster. This is what you're to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man. And they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. So they, their solution, this is the logic you have to understand of how depraved Israel has become at this point, is okay, now that we've decimated or completely destroyed the tribe of Benjamin, there's only like 600 of them left and they're hiding in a rock, we've got to save them. We can't have a tribe be wiped out. So we've got to preserve the tribal unity. Now they want to preserve tribal unity for some reason. So they're like, okay, well, we already made an oath that we can't give any of our daughters. So how do we find wives for these Benjaminites so that they don't die off as a tribe? I've got it. We made another oath that said anybody that didn't come and fight with us is going to be put to death. So let's go 
punish this town that didn't join in our fighting, put them to death, except for the young women who are virgins who are suitable wives, and we'll take them and then they can marry the Benjaminites. You see the perverted logic that they're doing? They're bending over backwards to keep these ridiculous vows that they made to the point of doing something that is completely antithetical to the law of Torah, which is attacking a non-enemy village, attacking fellow Israelites, and kidnapping the women that they find there. So now the, the brutal treatment of one woman back in chapter 19 has just spiraled out into the brutality towards hundreds of women. So it's just this complete, things are just falling apart in every way possible. And yet Israel's trying to maintain this veneer of religiosity. Oh, we're keeping our vow because we made it to the Lord. It's ridiculous. They're, they're straining out uh, camels, or straining out gnats and swallowing camels, as Jesus said. They're, they're, they're upholding the traditions of men and denying the spirit of the law of God. Everything about the situation is screwed up. So, they brought him, it says they brought the women back to Shiloh. What's Shiloh? That's where the tabernacle was. So this seems to sanctify it, right? Bring him back to Shiloh and then God approves of this whole action. We can get God's blessing on this. But the narrator is very sly. He says they brought him back to, uh, in the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. And there's your clue. Because this is the only time after the conquest that this land is ever called Canaan. It was Canaanite before Israel entered in under Joshua. After the conquest, it was Israel, an Israelite, or the land of Israel rather. But the narrator lets us know pretty clearly, no, no, this whole thing is Canaan. The project failed. Israel has just become as pagan as any of their neighbors ever were. And so what Israel thinks they're doing very religiously and scrupulously, they're actually acting as the epitome of pagans at the end of this book, dark book in Israel's history. So then the whole assembly, so they've got their kidnapped victims, then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjaminites at the Rock of Rimmon. So the Benjaminites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough of all of them. So there's still even not enough. There's only like a few hundred women and there's still Benjaminites who need wives. Verse 15, the people grieved for Benjamin. Grieved for Benjamin. Not for the wives that they've kidnapped for them. Not for the deaths that they'd inflicted. Not for the inner tribal fighting. But they grieved because they still don't have enough wives to keep this tribe going. And so that's what makes them grieve. Then they said they grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. No, Israel had made that gap. Everything about this, they're trying to invoke God, but everything, the entire situation smacks of paganism. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjaminite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. All they care about is this tribal uh, unity now. The Benjaminite survivor, uh, verse 18, we can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjaminite. See, the oath that they took, they're now saying, but we can't break that oath. But look, here is the annual festival of the Lord at Shiloh to the north of Bethel and the east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and to the south of Lebanon. So now they're like, but wait, there's a festival here at Shiloh to the Lord. So, verse 20, they instructed the Benjaminites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the girls of Shiloh, the religious center of Israel, come out to join in the dancing, then rush from the vineyards and each of you seize a wife from the girls of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. So kidnap them. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, 
will say to them, do us a kindness by helping them, these kidnappers, because we did not get wives for them during the war, and you are innocent since you didn't give your daughters to them. So let your daughters be kidnapped for the sake of the greater good, and you're not responsible for God, and, and it'll all be good. It's absurd. This is the opposite of how women were treated at the beginning of the book of Judges with people like Aksa and Deborah and Jael. It is descended into utter madness. So, verse 23, so that's what the Benjaminites did. While the girls were dancing, each man, and it says caught one, but NIV says caught, but it's the word for robbed, like highway robbery. Each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. Ah, all is good. Everything's back to normal now. And then the narrator ends the book with the most damning sentence of all. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And that is where Judges ends. That is the message of Judges, is when there is no king in Israel, and God is supposed to be the king, when there's no king in Israel, people will do what's right in their own eyes. And what was right in the eyes of the men of Gibeah was to gang rape the, the Levite and his concubine, whoever they could get. They did what was right in their eyes. Then, in response to that, the Israelites thought, well, it's right in our eyes to go to war against Gibeah. Well, then the Benjaminites said, no, it's right in our eyes to defend Gibeah because they're one of us. Whether they're right or wrong, we've got to defend them because they're our own, that nationalism which is a toxic ideology even to this day. Our, my country, right or wrong. So then Israel's like, well, now we've got to wipe out Benjamin because that's right in our own eyes. They, they, the whole tribe gets... But then they have this remorse. Oh, no. We, we, look what we almost did. We've got to save this tribe. So now, I know we'll go steal women to give to them. And we'll go capture these young religious girls at a festival in Shiloh and give them to them. It's just a layer upon layer of absurdity. And this is, again, and when Judges gets taught, it doesn't get taught a lot because of things like this. This is not sermon material. This is not happy material. This isn't, you can't, there's no like inspiration from this to go out and take on the world. No, this is a, this is a damning indictment of the evil that happens when we do what's right in our own eyes with no regard for God. And that's the story of Israel as a nation through the book of Judges. And it seems hopeless. I mean, by this point, it seems hopeless. And the next book in the Hebrew Bible, not in our English Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, the next book is Samuel. Because Samuel's going to come as a light into this darkness. And he's going to be kind of this remnant that's, that's faithful in the face of so much surrounding evil. And he is going to be the conscience of Israel for a generation. And then eventually, he is going to anoint the first kings of Israel who then start to pull the nation back from the brink, but only for two generations. Because even David and even Solomon after him can't do it. And it's during Solomon's reign that, that, again, things go off the rails and they never get back on track. And Israel is exiled and they're completely driven from the land. And so all of Judges, like it's, it's, it's not a happy ending. And we don't like that as American Christians. We want a happy ending. We want a Hallmark movie. We want a VeggieTales episode. We want something that we can take as a daily affirmation. No, Judges does not give us that. It, what it does is it says this is humanity when it goes its own way and does what's right according to its own eyes. This is what will happen even among God's people. 
especially among God's people. And that's what makes it so much more uh, horrendous is that this is not describing Canaanites and their behavior, like Jebusites, Amalekites, you know, Hittites, Perizzites. It's not describing them. This is Israel doing this. This is the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The same tribe that Saul was going to come from in the next book. It's the, same, it's the rot has reached the center of Israel. And that's what, book, what Judges shows us. Judges is like a slow free fall until they hit rock bottom at the end. And then the, we're left as readers going, okay, what, how in the world is God going to redeem this situation? What can He possibly do? And the immediate answer is going to come in the form of there was no king in Israel. They're going to get a king to right some of those wrongs. But the ultimate answer is going to come in the capital K king, the true king of Israel, who's going to go to the core of the rot and is going to change their hearts. And that's what we are going to take two weeks to break and celebrate is the arrival of that king who ties up all the threads and all the longings that Israel had and, and actually is the one who can do something about this infestation of evil and idolatry and, and bring Israel out of captivity. So Israel sings longs, O come, O come, Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. And that is what we're celebrating with this Christmas season. So Judges leads us to the brink of the abyss and pushes us over the edge. And then from there, in the darkness of the depths of evil, Israel and us as readers cry out, who will rescue us? Who will save us? And that's what Christmas season is the beginning of, that dawning light. So how's that for tying up a terrible book with a Christmas message? Guys, it's been a fun year. Uh, we'll meet back in January, so come excited, come hungry, and we've got leftovers, take them with you. Have a great week. <clears throat>